Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Jane's Talks. Um, really great to have you all here today. Um, I've got a new guest for you today. Um, a friend of mine who is a filmmaker and a writer and a creative person all round. Um, her name is Sarah Arlen. Um, and she's an American who lives in Paris. And um, we're going to be talking a bit about creativity and lots of other things. So uh, welcome, Sarah. Hello, James and Friends. <laughs> James and Friends. That sounds <laughs> a good name for a podcast. Isn't it? Um, so, yeah. So um, tell us just a bit about, about who you are. Like what you, yeah. Yeah. So like you said, my name is Sarah. And I am a creative person. I'm a creator because I make stuff. So the thing about me is I make lots of different type of stuff. I am a writer, as you said, a producer, a director, an actor. I am an activist. I love making all sorts of things from photography to experimental poetry. I like to mm. do things like Periscope. And I consider all of that within the creative uh, artistic part of me and I think anyone who makes stuff has the right to call themselves a creator so I love the title creator because then I can just say I make stuff and then I can make whatever I want and not be reduced to a box <laughs> yeah absolutely I, I, yeah I know what you mean by that because I used to just consider myself a writer until about a year ago probably then I started making and I started coaching people and I started um doing podcasts yeah. and loving it. I love podcasting. I just love it. I love interviewing people. You um, make a lot of stuff. You're totally a creator. Yeah. You make lots of stuff. I make, go, yeah, that's it. It's not like I'm a, well, I do one thing. It's um, what somebody I know calls the portfolio kind of thing. You know, the, you, know, you have a, there's no such thing as just, oh, I just do one media and that's it. You know, most people you, you see now who are creative, you know, they, they probably have one medium where they're strong, mm -hmm. um, which for me would probably be writing, but not, but yeah, there's a whole kind of portfolio of stuff that they, you know, creativity kind of expresses itself in loads of different ways. Exactly. I think that ideas, if you let them, they take the form that they need to take mm. and you learn how to do that because the idea needs that form so I became a director because as an actor I actually wanted to feel the other side of what it was to create something that had to do with creating characters in a story mm. and then after I got my master's degree in directing I realized that I wanted to become a producer because there are some things that I wanted to create in the capacity of what that skill set is so I actually learned the skill sets because I had the ideas and the ideas said hey Sarah I'm not just going to be a piece of theater. I'm not just going to be a film. I'm going to be something else that you're going to create. And I love what you said is that these things, you know, you, you sometimes start with an idea of I'm going to be this one thing. And I love when people unleash themselves and they're like, but you know what? I'm going to make podcasts and I'm going to create websites and those are beautiful. And I'm going to create um, chalk art on the sidewalk. There are all sorts of things that people make that add so much mm. to the world make you a creator yeah. yeah yeah i mean absolutely yeah and you've got a really interesting i mean story i mean you you <laughs> um sarah and i've been friends for quite a while now and actually that's an interesting story um that's a story worth telling actually i'm going to tell the story of how we met um i love that story <laughs> uh, it's such a good story um i was uh i was on twitter like last november i think it was and i was in a kind of i don't care i'm just going to risk 
asking anybody on my podcast kind of mood. So um, I tweeted Elizabeth Gilbert, <laughs> author of um, Eat, Pray, Love, which has sold 10 million copies, and um, and um, Big Magic, uh, which is an awesome book, by the way. Uh, I keep telling I mentioned that book loads on this podcast. Um, but I tweeted her and I said, oh, like, I'm just being being really brave and like ridiculous uh but i'm just going to ask you to be on my like do you want to come on my podcast you know and then um elizabeth gilbert tweeted me back yeah like i've got a photo because she's awesome and i i took a photo of it it was like it was like the best rejection ever yeah it was like elizabeth gilbert said to me um, yeah, name dropping. Uh, like, I applaud the risk. You know, this is really great. Bravo, well done. This is great. Let this be your new self. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I didn't even notice that the, oh, I did notice, but I didn't even feel like she'd said no. The second half of the tweet was like, I'm sorry, I've got to say no, but keep doing this, you know, keep risking, you know, and it was just the most encouraging rejection in the history of the world, you know, um, like she's think, a classy, classy lady. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. And, and you, Sarah, uh, Sarah follows Elizabeth Gilbert on Twitter as well. Yeah. And she saw this tweet and favorited it and then tweeted me back. I think, is that right? I think that's what happened, isn't I it? I think so. Yeah. And then we just started talking on Twitter like loads. And then we, uh, and then I watched her on Periscope load and then we had a Skype and it was just like, that was it. It's like, yeah. Um, so yeah. it's that, and it's amazing. And because of that, I connected with Anita, who was on my podcast a while back. Who I love, Anita Wingley. Yeah, Anita Wingley, and um, who's going to be on again, or may have been on again by the time this goes out. I don't record these in order, by the way. These interviews, I just like. <laughs> I, I never know when they're going to go out. <laughs> um, readers, I just, I just, wanna, I just love talking to lo- to loads of different people. That's why I do this. Like, and then, like, I just like. When it's appropriate to send them out, I will send them out into the world. You know, um, not one of the people that kind of has like a strict schedule of like it's going to be this person this week. I kind of decide a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, Sounds good to um, me. Unless they're really topical, that's slightly different. But uh, generally, they're not really topic sensitive. So, uh, so in other words, you will release this when I am big and famous. Is that? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, everyone, Sarah is on IMDb. She is. I'm totally on IMDb now, but not as a famous person. So. No, but, yeah, but you do know a few famous people. Tell us, just tell us a bit of your acting background and like where you got educated and stuff. Yeah, should I name drop? <laughs> you can name people. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, you can name drop. Well, What's funny is I started as an actor as a kid, but I I didn't I wasn't allowed to audition for professional jobs, so I did amateur stuff as a kid, and then when I went to UC Berkeley. I studied with some of the best acting teachers that are around, and some of my classmates who I did plays with are really quite famous, and I I won't name drop, but it's been interesting to make my own stuff and watch some people become A-listers and some people become TV stars and all of these things, and then be able to talk to them and ask them what it's really like. And what's interesting is that one of my friends is on TV right now, and he has a lead part in a a show on ABC, and he... (laughs) Every year visits me in Paris. He hasn't visited for a couple of years, but he, because he's so busy. And he, every year we would say, like, where are you at and where are you at with your career? And, you know, it's not comparative. They're just different. Everybody's different. And for a while he was feeling lost. For a while I was feeling lost. We just kept making stuff. And as long as you keep making stuff, you are still moving forward. 
And it's so interesting because when you're true friends, you're not comparing. When you're true friends, you're not like, oh my God, you're on the cover of US Weekly. What is that about? You know, you were on the cover of all these things. It it just becomes that like, wow, mm. you have to worry about whether people actually like you for you or whether you are liked because you're on television. Wow. And it becomes this mind-blowing exploration of what creativity does to mm. certain people's lives, especially if they live in Hollywood. <laughs> just yeah, and I, yeah, and I actually, and um, in our private discussions, and um, um, Sarah has name-dropped at least one person who's <laughs> very well-known and... Um, and isn't an asshole at all he's actually a really nice guy really nice and it's a it's a guy but i'm not gonna say who it is um i could i love teasing people i when i when i I have people on big like really like well-known people on my podcast i always tease it like it's just so much fun um i I won't give it i I could give like a really big hint away but i i I really want to but i'm just not gonna do that that wouldn't be fair that would be wouldn't be fair on you um about him is that he is a genuinely nice person and he really cares about what he creates that's yes. cool and he's a top level hollywood a-list or very famous person who all of you would know yes <laughs> we're not telling you who it is yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah <laughs> oh i'm so but it's good to know that you know it is possible to get to sort of the top of the food chain because there is a food chain in industries you don't need to participate in it you don't need to worry about the food chain but sometimes people get picked up and put on top of a food chain and it's good to know that it is possible to maintain your integrity because not everybody does that's really important actually that's a really serious point and that you know because i know a lot of people who i mean i have people who were good friends and our friendship has suffered when they've been successful because yeah they've been they've hung around the wrong people yeah um they've without realizing it they've become assholes yeah and start yeah. to manipulate people and be yeah and they haven't realized it they still think they're a nice person you know they don't think they're horrible they're not being malicious yeah. but if you're not careful if you're not prepared and you don't have good people around you that's what can happen and yeah i think you've said to me before that you know that there's two kinds of people in Hollywood. There's like, there's people who are really nice people and genuine people, and there's people who are just assholes. That, that's basically <laughs> what you said to me. Than two types, but there are those genuine, gen, like general two types of yeah, absolutely. There are people who I would say are um, creation is important to them, and they they realize that you can be a kind person and create stuff. And then there are people who I think become assholes because they're insecure and they're they're trying to make stuff without really feeling the importance of what it is to put something into the world. They're worried about the bottom line. They're worried about things that... That's what I've experienced with writers as well. The same. Uh, it's the same principle. Um, so, yeah, back back to you. Um, so you... So you've... So you've kind of come through acting and now you're going into producing and directing. So what What's kind of what have you been doing? Like, how did you? How did that happen? What was the story of that? I always wanted to be a writer and an actor from the time that I was really small. My mom tells me a story that I read with her, the story of Chicken Little, and then acted it out. I like performed it as a three act play when I was really small, two Aww. years old. I was performing Chicken Little. It was an interpretive dance. It was lots of things artistic. And I always had it in me. So when I went to UC Berkeley, I studied writing and I studied acting. And then when I graduated, I realized that I didn't want to be 
only an interpretive artist. So there's nothing wrong with being an interpretive artist, but there's a different mm-hmm. type of artist, which is called in my world, in my head, generative. And that is someone who generates the art that they're going to participate in. So I don't have any problem with actors who are interpretive artists. That's totally great. And we need a lot of those in order to make things happen for the generative artists. And it's just a different experience, right? Because if you're an interpretive artist, you're waiting for the jobs. And if you're a generative artist, you are creating the jobs. You're creating the stuff that is being made and the the things uh, that other people will help you make. So I decided instead of getting my master's degree in acting, which almost all of my friends did, almost all of my friends went from doing acting uh, undergraduate work to doing graduate work in acting. And I said, I really want to be a director. So that's why I moved to Paris is I got my master's degree here in directing. And then when I graduated, I thought, oh, wait, I'm missing a huge part of the puzzle because being a producer, people often don't realize what a producer does. I think that the Mm. people that I admire most are actually producers in life. They don't have to be producers in film, but I think this is a really important thing for artists to know about. The producer in the film world is the one who picks up and holds the best Oscar for best picture. That's who That's gets right. that yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's because they have made that entire project actually happen. So the producer is not the person who has the money. The producer is the person who uses the money and the resources to make the project. And, and that's what people confuse. Orchestrates it all together. Like exactly. project managers it kind of thing. Is that, would that be... It, it's, it's complicated because in the film world, there are things like line producers and associate producers. There are all sorts of ranks of producers. And also, the other thing, which I think is important for all artists to use as a sort of example, is there are money producers. There are producers that have the money, bring the money, find the money. But I am what's called a creative producer, which is that not only do I orchestrate the film actually being made, but I also develop the film. And that's a really important thing because I think all artists need a process with which to develop the stuff as well as doing the actual making Mm. of the stuff. So me as a producer, that's what I'm so interested in is not only getting the film made and getting it out into the world, but the part that comes before that, which is in the film world called development. And I always hope that other artists also let themselves have or create for themselves a development period, because that means that's when you get to really explore the idea And that's what I do as a producer is I take the time to develop a project. And the film that I'm making now, I'm I'm in process of making my first feature film. It's in post-production. And for me, the development of that film was to come up with a story and figure out how Mm -hmm. to best make that with the resources that I have. But before that, I prepared myself to create that by making short films. And that, and by writing screenplays and by doing all that. So that preparatory work was also a part of me figuring out how to produce a big thing. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with writing. I mean, I, I blogged for eight years before I wrote my, started, began writing my my first like long book, uh, print book, which is coming out soon. Um, yay! Um, yay! <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's definitely, I definitely agree with you on that i mean that's yeah i love the process of coming up with ideas you know yeah um definitely and developing them you know it's those those two kinds of creative people the what, what would you say in, what do you say interpretive 
artists. Interpretivist and, and generative artists. Gen- I actually have to give credit to, um, what was my professor's name in college? Joe Good came up with that. He's a great choreographer, actually, a dance choreographer, and he has his own dance troupe in San Francisco. And he taught me that when I was at UC Berkeley. Interpretive and generative artists. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. I'm definitely more of a generative artist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for writers is you're generative right but yeah. the, the hard thing for people who are in the acting world or people who are in the singing world or sometimes you know any musicians um it's not necessarily true that if you're a musician you'll create you'll write your own music and produce your own music a lot of times you are interpreting other people's songs and lyrics other people's orchestras other people's stuff and so obviously i mean it's amazing to be an interpretive artist but it just means you have a very different relationship with the art itself yeah that's really really interesting Mm. yeah absolutely um yeah so one of the things i really wanted to talk to you about today um is um your kind of your background your story of depression mental illness and and how that's impacted your creativity so so tell us a bit about um, that whole experience of you know, depression and, um, and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, have a, I had a father who passed away when I was 14. He was bipolar. Mm. And I watched him suffer with mental illness my whole life up until he died. That made a big impact on me and my soul and my heart and how I chose to take care of myself and live my life because I was so aware of how destructive mental illness can be. But I also had a lot of hope that it wouldn't destroy me and that instead I would, if I had it, use it in a different way. So I am not manic depressive, but I am prone to depression and it's a different illness, but depression for me has been in several different forms. So my experience of it has been that I had depression on and off throughout childhood, adolescence, college. I would have dips. I've never been suicidal, but I have understood why my father committed suicide more and more. You can never understand what was going on in someone's head, but I feel very empathetic every year that goes by. I feel more and more understanding of what he might have felt and been going through. And for me, one of the things that started happening was in order to thrive as a human with sometimes depression, I ended up using the feelings that I had in those depressions in order to create stuff. And it's very directly linked. Creation is very directly linked to my depression as I mean, so many creative people throughout history have had depression. I think the trick, there are tricks to it though, right? It's not just you have depression and you create stuff. Depression is actually really hard to create stuff during it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've, I've not had depression, but I've, but I've definitely had, um, severe, severe anxiety and anxiety attacks and that kind of thing. And I mean, and I've had and very very low moods as well. And again, while well, you know, I, haven't, I don't think I would I would have I, would, I could say I've had clinical depression, but certainly severe anxiety. And um, again, I can although I don't know what the experience is myself, I can definitely empathise with with that. And I've talked to a lot of people doing this podcast who've who've struggled with depression and mental illness and and uh, have friends who have and 
um, it's you know, it's not easy at all, um, and it's not and it's difficult to really relate relate unless you've actually experienced it yourself or been very close to somebody who's experienced it. And one of the things about it is that everyone's depression is different. So as much as we can relate to each other, it's also I think interesting and very important to point out that everybody experiences it differently. For me, I experience it like internal weather. And Carrie Fisher, who's bipolar, has also said this, that it's like internal weather. It's like suddenly it's raining. Outside it ain't raining, but inside all of a sudden it's raining. It's really affecting the way that you see everything. Um, For me, it also is a bit like if you're a tree, depression is when your roots are going downwards further into the soil, and it hurts a bit. It's pushing through gravel and all the layers of the earth to go deeper and to really reach nutrients that are further down. That's what it feels like. So I I have to be careful talking about it because I know for some people when they have clinical depression, they're suicidal or they're unable to really function on a daily level. So everyone experiences this differently. I've had postpartum and I've had some clinical depression. I've never I've never taken medication for it. I've figured out different ways to deal with it. I've gotten close to taking medication for it, but I haven't done it. I've mm-hmm. been able to thrive through it, having very low moments um, and creating something out of them because that was the way that I survived it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the reason we, we, we agreed to talk about this was because out of... <sighs> Yeah, because obviously we're creators and, um, you know, we express ourselves creatively. I mean, everyone is creative, you know, let's disqualify that. But um, creativity is a way of, I certainly found with my anxiety and all my insecurities and everything that writing them out, like an act of creativity is a great way of healing, a great way of getting things out of your system and actually it sometimes articulates things that you didn't even know what you were really feeling you just knew you were feeling really down about something and um and so you write it out and suddenly it becomes a bit more clear uh, I, I mean i don't know I mean, what's your experience of creativity in relation to your depression and your you know and, and low moods and things i think that first of all i should say that i am lucky enough to have to be able to afford therapy. So I go to therapy regularly and therefore what's funny is it ends up being a creative session. I end up having, uh, create, it feels like I'm beginning to create something when I walk out of therapy. So I think people who have a way of, of processing things, not only through art, but also through some sort of therapeutic outlet, that's a great, meshing because depression the scariest part about it is that it can sometimes paralyze you the paralysis is the hardest thing to get over but for me what happens is for instance I got postpartum depression when I had my son and for a couple years after that I didn't know what to do with my creativity because I was taking care of an infant pretty much by myself because my husband travels a lot for work so I was really overwhelmed by taking care of another human really well and all that. But at a certain point, my creativity was surging to get out. And the pressure of not letting it go somewhere was actually 
creating a lot of the depression. So I think sometimes depression is creativity bubbling up and wanting to come out and people don't always know where to put that. You know, and I think sometimes that internal pressure actually needs the outlet that you're talking about, the outlet of getting your feelings out so that you can discover them because you're right. You do discover it as you come out. And what I ended up writing it during my postpartum depression, which will probably be my next film actually, is that I wrote a script that was sci-fi. And when you look at it, you will probably never realize that I wrote it as a cure to depression because it's not about depression. It's not about you. There's nothing you can look at it and say like that girl had postpartum depression. It's that for me, that story came out of me because I felt depressed. It, for me, that story, even though it's sci-fi, even though there are these characters that are nothing like me, inside of the the moral tale of it is actually how to overcome depression, if you look at it from my standpoint. And so what it did for me, it, it gave me a really deep well, not to toot my own horn, but it, 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 de- it, it added depth to an idea that I'd had years ago that didn't work without that depth, without that emotional understanding of what it felt like to be sort of helpless feeling or really lonely feeling or feeling like something wasn't working. And the fun thing about creativity when linked to something as deep as depression, because as disabling as depression can be, it is also a very uh, depth of emotion feeling that you can access stuff that you might not otherwise be able to access within your human experience. So it's, Mm. if you can, if you can somehow, you know, let yourself know that during depression, you're actually accessing a very deep part of your humanity that you might not otherwise reach, then you can figure out how to transform that into something that may not talk at all about depression. It taught it, it, you use those feelings in a, in a different way and it creates something that you never would have been able to make without those deep feelings. Wow. That's amazing. And I think you're right because I, um, um, my mother, um, she had a, in 1985, when I was eight years old, she had a very serious asthma attack. Um, she was a very in- intelligent, independent woman, spoke fluent French, French teacher, loved France. Okay. Um, um, we used to go there every year for holiday, love France. Um, but she lost her short-term memory, which meant that she couldn't be as independent as she was before. Yeah. yeah, she couldn't work, um, she couldn't do some of the things she could do before, and that caused her a lot of um, depression. I don't know if it was clinical depression, but certainly she got very, very down about it. Um, and one of the things that they did, actually, to deal with this, because it was really bad at first. At first, she couldn't remember 15 minutes, you know, it got a lot wow. better, but she couldn't... But So she needed a lot of psychotherapy and that kind of thing. And one of the things I got her to do was write. Yeah. And she wrote some poetry around that time, which we still have. And it's just the most amazing poetry. And some of it's not even, actually none of it's about her illness at all. It's it's not about that at all. It's there's stuff about, there's stuff about um, like cricket, which is a game, an English game that people, you know, if you're American, you might understand what it is probably. I've tried to understand it and I do not. No, no. Um, because my dad plays cricket, so she wrote about cricket and she didn't understand it. She wrote a poem about that. She wrote a poem about me and my sister, which is like, 
Oh, wow. Because um, <laughs> we chills thinking about it. Um, about protecting us from the world and suffering and stuff. And then loads of other ones. And all of them were just weren't related to what was happening to her. But they were an expression of something that was inside of her. And they were really helpful to her therapy. So it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, um, you know, there's, yeah, go on. I, I just, I, I, I feel going off of that beautiful story about your mom is that a lot of times when you write, you don't have to have an end game. You don't always have to have an end game. And especially when you're suffering through something or you're, you're, to me, your mom must have had a severe identity crisis yeah. at that time because she lost so much of what you can do day to day. And I think that in a different way, we are all always going through identity reevaluation. We're constantly like, who are we today? What are we interested in? What are we going to do? And that creating is a part of figuring that out. Because you said something so wise, which you said writing helps you figure it out. It's not like you figure it out and then you write it down. You figure it out while you are writing it down. And that is so important to anyone, I think, human-wise, because we are constantly dealing with identity questions, but especially if you have a mental illness alongside treatment or as a part of treatment, that actually gives you the outlet where it doesn't have to be about the depression. It doesn't have to be about the topic. It's actually tapping into what your soul or what your humanity needs to get out into the world. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And And actually, I mean, that process works the same whether you've got depression or not. Um, yeah. And I, I, I've told this story many times. Everyone who knows my work will know this story. That a couple of years ago, I gave up public public blogging, whatever, everything public, um, basically for an indefinite period because I started to lose authenticity. I started to become that asshole. I was on the, the way to becoming that asshole we talk about. Um, and my friends had spotted it and I'd spotted it and I just had to stop. And, um, I wrote every day, but I didn't publish anything. And uh-huh. just writing every day, like, even if it was just like a little paragraph on this private blog. And suddenly I just started to find something. Well, over time, it took time. Yeah. Started with just surface crap, but you know, what, the more time went on, the more you dug deep, you found stuff in there. And that stuff, that all that stuff that I learned in that period, all that those ideas that I found then are going into the book that I'm just starting to write. Exactly. That is the this... book I'm writing. I'm not writing I'm not writing necessarily about that period in depth, but I'm I mean a lot of what those ideas were developed in that period. And so they're part of they're part of me. You know, I'm writing the book because it's something that I know that I have to make because I learned all these lessons and I even tried them out on somebody else in my coaching and found that they worked as well. You know, I'm not saying they work for everybody because loads of people, loads of coaches or whatever say, Oh, these are guaranteed ideas that work for everybody. I'm not going to say that, but they work for me and they work for somebody else. And I think they work for a lot of people. Um, so that's what I'm doing. You know, and that's, that's where that came from was from that period where I just kind of just sat and just, dug into myself rather than just kind of wanting to publish something or writing something to publish, you know? 
This reminds me very much. I mean, I think what you were doing in essence is finding your voice. And that well, yeah, is what yeah. all people need to do is they all need to find their voice, especially when, well, I mean, I think especially always, honestly, that that applies to everyone and people who are artists, who are creators making stuff, something, a personal story like yours from, from my side of the world is that, um, when I started writing again and I wrote this feature film that's sci-fi that I'll hopefully make for my next feature, I saw that it was too much for me to actually go and shoot it. I, I don't have millions of dollars. So I said, oh, man, I, I wrote something that I can't, what would be the equivalent of publish, right? It's not going to become public yet, but it was great for me to write it. I know that someday maybe I'll be able to make it. But then my best friend and co-producer, Greg, who lives in New York, who I love so incredibly much, he said, you know, the next time I come visit you, why don't we just take my camera and we'll make a little something? And so we ended up making these little film shoots happen that would take a couple of hours here or a couple of hours there. He was there for, he was here in Paris with me for probably a week mm. visiting Soren, my son, who is his grandson. I mean, his godson, not his grandson. And <laughs> yeah, that would be weird. And he, you know, he would, we would have a few hours of babysitting here with my friend and then we would run out and go shoot something. And I think what people don't realize is that we shot probably four different little bits of things. Hmm. And three of those things just didn't work well. So we were like, oh, that was fun to shoot, but we don't need to release it anywhere. But one of those things we made into a short film and that short film after a couple of years of taking our time to edit it we were making lots of other stuff I was raising a kid he was making all sorts of his stuff after a little while that film that we had spent five hours on ended up winning a ton of awards and having us travel the world to go to film festivals and all this stuff so you never know what's going to come out of what you make but the other thing is there's nothing wrong with making stuff and not publishing it not putting it up on the internet not you know releasing it to the world yeah, because absolutely. quarters of what we made during that trip has never been seen by anyone and it's just fine exactly and this is this is the argument i make a lot is that i i see a lot of people argue or give the impression at least that your work doesn't matter unless it's got unless it gets in front of unless it gets in front of an audience and uh, don't you want to have an impact don't you want to don't you want people to read your work don't you it's like what what if people, what if you don't what if people don't need who who decides that like your work only matters if if it gets an audience i actually did a podcast on this you know that actually it's not about that it's about creating the work yes because that's why i love the word creator and that's why i love that people can associate themselves with creator because a creator is a person who makes stuff. Notice that that definition in my world does not mean you showed people that stuff you made. You can, but what is important to me is that you created it. I think that some of it goes out to people, but it's such a myth. And I think it's a harmful myth for people to think that, that those who are out there publishing and releasing films and releasing stuff, put all their stuff out there because that is just not the truth. There are so many things that people write. Elizabeth Gilbert has some writing that she's never published. All these people who we love and admire have stuff. You know, when you make a film, you have to know this, that so much of what you shoot will never be seen. 
there are, you know, Woody Allen, when he made Annie Hall, which is one of the best films Woody Allen ever made out of the, like, 40 or 50 films that guy has made, whether you like Woody Allen or not, Annie Hall, when he originally edited it, was four hours long. Annie Hall that actually exists as a film that was released is an hour and a half. He cut two and a half hours of stuff that's just on the floor. Sigourney Weaver was one of the actors cut out of Annie Hall because she wasn't famous yet and she didn't fit into the story, so he cut her out. There's so much of the stuff that is put out there that is actually just the part that the the creator said, this is what needs to reach the people. And there's so much stuff that they've made that never gets released just because that's not the thing that it needed to well, do. I heard about that with Terrence Malick as well. One of the, with some films that he's made, he's got these, and all the big actors want to work with him, funnily yeah. enough. And like, yeah. he's not like, he's never in, like out in public and doesn't do interviews, anything like that. But everyone wants to work with him. And he's made movies where big stars have been in it. Like, and they've been big stars when, when he's been, like directing yeah. them and he's cut them out of the movie because it doesn't work like you know and he's not like oh they're a big star i've got to keep them in it's like no i'm gonna i'm gonna decide what goes in and you know and yeah exactly you're the creator you're the person who gets to decide that is completely within your human right it doesn't mean that the stuff that you didn't publish or that you didn't release is a waste of your time. Quite frankly, I never would have gotten to the point of making my first feature film if I hadn't thrown some stuff to the side and said, I'm so glad that I made it, but I'm not putting it out there. But I'm, I don't know if I would be where I am right now if I didn't make that stuff, even though it didn't get out there, because I think that everything that I have created somehow fits into what I'm creating now. So thinking that writing for yourself, you know, in quotes, and not releasing what you've written, you need to do some of that because you do need to find your voice because this is about liberation and about exploration. I think exploration is really important because I do think that each of us has value inside of us that we can reach in and then hand to other humans. But you don't have to just take all of you out and keep handing it to everyone that's not necessary in order to have the beauty of creation be yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing, I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but one question, because we've talked about, you know, suffering as a, basically suffering as a kind of a big trigger for creativity, something which allows us to tap into something inside of us and create something completely new. Um, now, you know, we've both read Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, Um and if you haven't read it, read it. Read it. Um, one day he's going to come on this podcast. I'm going to get her on one day. <laughs> um, um, but, um, but yes, she talks about um, creative martyrs and yeah. how, like, there's this great, like, idea and concept of, like, the creative martyr, like the, especially with writers, um, you know, like writers are kind of manic, all manic depressives and they write out of a place of suffering and pain. It's all kind of negative and dark and whatever in it, you know. And, but actually he talks about the, the trickster, the, like the mischievous, adventurous risk taker, like who's not afraid to fail, who's, um, um, who's like, you know, crazy and funny and, you know, has joy, um, in creating, you know. Um, now obviously we've talked about how suffering is important a big part of 
creativity and lots of great creative work comes out of suffering um so how do we get how do we kind of acknowledge that and keep true to that but keep that sense of adventure and risk and and fun and joy in creating do you think i think that's a great question this may take me a couple of different parts to answer because for me one of the tricks is in order to actually make stuff you have to be functional and if you stay in illness you're not able to function so you don't need to be healed in order to make stuff but you do need to be healing you need to be in process of finding some solution that that helps you to function that's the trick is for martyrs people want to say oh i suffered for my art like it gives them street cred or it gives them some sort of you know, specialness. You don't need that to be special. You don't have to go looking for suffering. Because another thing that I noticed when I was an acting student is that some actors who came from pretty privileged backgrounds, which I don't come from, uh, would come into acting class and really not have anything to draw on. You know, they wouldn't have an emotional reserve to bring, you know, real believable emotions out with. And so sometimes I would see them turn to self-destructive behavior, thinking that that would give them depth. The thing is that that does not work. Destroying yourself does not create anything. The thing is destruction is the opposite of creation. So if you're going out there as a martyr saying my suffering will make me great, no, your healing will make you great. Life already slams you with enough suffering on its own. Don't go out there and try to destroy yourself. When I Think of all the artists who were drug users, for example, who created and used drugs. I actually think that the ones who created were creating on days where they were able to get away from the destruction of the drugs. They were only able to make stuff because there has to be some way of being a functional person in order to make that thing happen. There are all Mm. these myths about like Hemingway being a drunk and writing this great novel. Hemingway actually wasn't like that like he was he had his drunk crazy bits but his most prolific part of his life he was very disciplined about not drinking during the time that he wrote so that he wasn't suffering while he was creating you take the suffering that happens naturally and you channel it but you don't look for suffering and you don't stay in suffering in order to create because you have to be able to get up out of bed and get to a notepad or whatever you use to create in order to do that and then you realize, especially if you're an actor and you're in a thing called a play, you're playing. <laughs> you're, you're playing like a little kid, and that's where the joy comes from. And that's why when I make stuff in other ways besides being an actor, I remember that as an actor, your job is to play. That's your job. Your job mm-hmm. is to go out and play. And I bring that to everything else that I create because that brings the joy. That brings the trickster. That brings, you know, the trickster being this wonderful Elizabeth Gilbert way of putting it. That makes you say, okay, I am able to invent what I want. This is my playground. I can write whatever words I want to in any order and try to figure out how that will connect with my reader. Or with my idea, if you're writing it for yourself, how you're communing sort of with an idea. And that's where my joy comes out of, is just knowing that I am healing, that I am doing things to construct my story and my idea and my message, and that I'm not looking to self-destruct, that I'm actually doing the opposite, because creation is the opposite of destruction. Exactly. Creating is 
it's I was, I was thinking of the the whole idea of looking outwards. Yeah. When you're creating something, you're bringing something new into existence. So you're looking outwards from yourself. You're not looking into yourself. So if you're in a I, place, so if you're in a place of suffering, mm. you can go and go and sit down and create. And you have to. You can't just look inside yourself. You have to. Even if the the right the work is coming from inside of you, you have to. You have to look at the page and start writing. Yeah, you're channeling it outwards. Exactly. It's going, not... Something is going out of you when you create. And, yeah, and I've, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I think you can be in a place where, where things are really dark. And yeah. you go to this place and it's like, almost like a release valve. It's like, yeah. and actually in that process, you begin to find joy. Yeah. And joy is not happiness. Joy is not all oh, everything's okay. Joy is life sucks. Life can suck. Well, things might suck now, but things can be better. And there is some good. There is a chunk of light that I can find in this, even in this moment. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I think joy for me feels like if you're a light bulb, it's shining. So it's not the same as happiness. It's that your light turns on. Yeah. And that is what creative, you know, there's a reason I think why we say light bulb moment and why we have this symbol of a light bulb for ideas. It feels like that to me. That feels very true. And that in the process, you're really bringing the dimmer switch up to make your light bulb brighter when you're creating. And that, that you know, it doesn't mean that you can't be dark to begin with. It literally just ratchets the electricity upwards so that you can shine as yourself, you can bring that message to light from yeah. inside you. I think that's the thing. I think I'll, I would want to say that um, to people who are suffering, I would want to say people, you know, that you can still find joy in creating. Mm. But actually, that can be the glimmer of light which brings you out of that place you're in, and you can still have fun doing that. You don't have to still be depressed while you're creating. You can still. You can still be in that place of, well, I think, you know, this sucks, this is a really difficult time, but I'm still going to have some joy in doing this because I get to, I get to control this because I'm creating it. Yeah. I'm making this. So I can, in a sense, you can almost escape um, into what you're doing and pour yourself into it. And there is a, there is a joy that you can have there. There isn't a, and actually, I mean, to be honest, as somebody who's lost a parent, which is pretty much the worst thing that's ever happened to me, you know. Um, those, you know, those, um, those days, you know, where you, you know, it's like this is really, really awful. Um, but not all is lost, you know. Um, that actually things can get better, and yeah. that you know you can kind of still laugh, like you know, like when you when we like when I lost when we lost when I lost mum we would. At a funeral, some of us were kind of laughing about things about her, about who she was. Yeah. I mean, we all still grieving, all still suffering, but we had joy. You know, it was like, you know what? Her life wasn't wasted and her life was amazing and meaningful. And, you know, she did all these great things and made all this great artwork and was such a great person of compassion and all this kind of stuff. And all the little idiosyncrasies that you know that are funny and you can laugh at those and you're still grieving, but you've yeah. got joy and you're having fun. And that's not, yeah. and I think that's, I think there is, I actually, in my experience, you find a deeper joy through 
that process than you do you can otherwise i think and creating in that context you can actually let it actually gives you permission to unlock that stuff yeah. that's inside yeah and then you can find real joy and you can go on an adventure and start something new it's like this has happened but yeah. it's not the end and i'm going to go i'm going to keep i'm going to i'm going to go again like a for what of a better metaphor resurrection like a a new beginning you know mm-hmm. something yeah. has, something has happened but it's not the end and i'm going to go on exactly i think that part of what creativity does is it says it's not too scary to face where you are because you're going to be empowered by making a little something by putting a little something outwards because depression Freud said that that depression is anger turned inwards. I think I would go beyond Freud and say I think it's it's emotion and creativity turned in on itself so that it's imploding and the minute that you turn it outwards again it empowers you and it puts all of that pressure and force like the release valve and creates something outwards like you were saying so that it it lets all of that darkness out in a way that acknowledges the darkness. You know, you're not pretending. There's never a moment when you need to pretend to be something you're not. There really isn't. Especially when you're in charge of your own creativity, you can be as dark and as sad or as what angry as you need to be in order to deal with that. And it's what's lovely about creation, especially when you're in a low place, there are there have been points in my life where I'm literally like on the floor sobbing. When I start to create something, even if it's simply like taking a pen and touching the ink to a piece of paper, there's something about it that gives me hope because there's just hope in the fact that I could, if I wanted to write a sentence and maybe, you know, write two sentences and Mm -hmm. then that is an important act at that point. It's a big deal when you're in a heap on the floor and that it, it also reminds me of this movie that I just saw. I'm going to promote another indie film that I have absolutely nothing to do with, but there's this really interesting film called me and Earl and the dying girl. I don't know if you've seen it or not. No, no, it sounds interesting already. (laughs) It's super interesting. I actually thought, Oh boy, this is going to be too hipster indie for me because that kind of turns me off if it's ever pretentious. But I actually found that it was this beautiful heartfelt movie. The first movie that a filmmaker made, maybe his second movie, but it, talks all about what happens when you're going through something horrible and these teenagers decide to try to make a short film for the woman, for the girl, the teenage girl who's dying of leukemia. And I don't want to give away the ending, so I won't, but the ending of that film moved me so much because it was, it was really all about how much creativity can really make a difference in people's lives. It was such a great illustration of that. And one of the things that it said was that everybody has, everybody is a walking story and you want to be able to share that story with other people. It's really important to try to share parts of your story with other people. And that's what creation is, is you're making something that you can share yourself with the world. You don't have to share all of it, but it is nice when you create something. And even if it's with one person, or even if it is with yourself and you're having like communal experience, you're communing with yourself it's an important thing because it acknowledges that you have a story you're entitled to that you're entitled to have a story and that's very empowering 
And then if you choose to share that, then that can reach out into the world and people can know more of you, which I think is a gift. So it's really gift giving. Yeah, I totally, I, I'm completely in agreement with you, Sarah. Um, so just um, kind of coming to the end, although we'll definitely have you back. Uh, I, think I think there's so much more we could talk about in relation to creativity, especially in, you know, um, so for someone who's like struggling, like who's, you know, say really down, going through yeah. something really difficult, um, I need a bit of hope and, you know, a bit of inspiration or motivation to get out and create and, you know, to start again in a sense. What would you, what, what would be your word to them? If you could say one thing. If I could say one thing, I'm like, oh boy, I have a really long answer for this. Okay, one thing. I would say that one of the hardest things about being in a horrible place is that your mind tricks you into thinking that you are alone and that that will stop you from making stuff if you think you're alone, I think. And so if you're in a really horrible place, as much as it is so difficult and as much as it is seemingly impossible when you're in a horrible suffering place, you have to find at least one person who you can put a little bit of trust into in order to help you turn your light bulb back on. For me, that person I've had, I've been really lucky to have several of those people in my life. They're, they are hard to find, but if you look around and if you don't have someone in your life that you feel fits that description, then find someone in life that could, you know, there, there are all sorts of different ways to do this. It doesn't have to be anyone in your family. It doesn't have to be anyone in your friend circle. Although I always, I always hope that people have at least one of these kinds of friends, but if you don't, there are hotlines for you to call and reach one person so that you know that that feeling of being alone is a trick. It's not a truth. For me, that person has often been Greg, the person that helped me make the short films, because I would say, Greg, I don't know if I'll ever be able to make anything. And he would, you know, gently say, you know, Sarah, it's okay if you don't make anything, but I bet you that if you write a page of dialogue, that would be really fun. And that one person can help you start to turn the light bulb back on. I think what's dangerous about any mental health situation, or even if you don't consider it mental illness, any kind of down situation where you feel very, very low, the most dangerous thing is to stay alone, to stay completely alone in it. And so you have to find a way to connect to at least one other caring, kind person, even if that's someone who is on Twitter, you know what I mean? Or who is behind the the counter at the cash register, someone kind where you just say, hi, my name is Sarah and I feel alone. Can we have a coffee together? And that's it, you know, and that's the beginning of turning your light bulb back on. Great. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you. so. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. It's been so great to talk about all this stuff with you. I am so honored. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing because like we said, when we're creating this, I actually discover, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what that is. We've discovered yeah. it as the, pod the podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks Sarah. And, um, 
Yeah, uh, that's all for this week, everyone. So um, take care and we'll talk soon. Yay!